Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Brian Broder and Eric Pankey. Hello, and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder, and I'm here at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. with poet Eric Pankey. Eric is the author of eight collections of poetry, including the pair as one example, New and Selected Poems, 1994 to 2008, published by Ausable Press in 2008. His work has been awarded numerous honors, including grants from the Ingram Merrill Foundation, the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. For the last decade, he has taught in the MFA program at George Mason University, where he is professor of English and the heritage share in writing. He lives in Fairfax, Virginia, with his wife and daughter. Eric Pankey, welcome. Thanks a lot, Ryan. I'd like you to start off by reading a poem, if you don't mind. Uh, would you mind reading The Pair as One Example? Certainly. The Pair as One Example. Light, the common denominator, does not conceive but cloaks and covers, and by wrapping reveals. The pick chips a sliver of ice. The wheat shadow swept by a storm front glows gold. The pair curves the lines the blinds let through. Asked to name it, who would not say pear? The plump and dimpled base, the blunt stem's woody accent, the green that is green. He closes his eyes, closes his hand around the pear and says, this is it, this I would know without metaphor. But his touch rubs up the pear's perfume, a hint of honey and magnolia grape and almond, none of it the pear, but the otherness that is the pear. And then his mind wanders to Eros, is it the unknown made intimate, or the known mass by light's flimsy veil? When he opens his eyes to see if what he holds is what he has held, he holds what anyone would call a pear. Thank you. So that poem appeared in the late romances a book that is part of the triptych, which also includes Cenotaph and Apocrypha. Could you talk a little about the triptych form in poetry, how it is similar to and different from its medieval counterpart in the visual arts, and how you arrived at this form in your own work? Sure. Um, first of all, I wanted to think in that, that visual art way, that is by placing three panels next to each other and seeing in what ways they would speak to one another and yet stand independently by themselves. And so the central panel is the late romances and is the most positive, I think, and, and uplifting of, of the three books, very much about the, the body and the pleasure that the body can, can have, the pleasure of intimacy, of, of appetites, of, of food, of, of wine, uh, all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and the notion of romance, that, that is, that, that in those Shakespeare romances, there, there are lots of problems that go on, but in the end, they resolve themselves like comedies, that is, in people coming together, in community coming together, uh, in marriage. Um, the opening panel, Apocrypha, was really a, an investigation of, of questions of the spirit, of the possibility of, of salvation, the possibility of even having a soul, I guess. 
Uh, and most of those inquiries were really philosophical and theological, I think. Uh, the third panel, um, Cenotaph, is really about the decay of the body, the, the way the body falls apart on us. Uh, and uh, there are lots of elegies, lots of meditations upon uh, death. What I was hoping is that no one of these panels would necessarily dominate, but together that they would give a kind of world vision. Um, but perhaps only in retrospect. And, you know, was anybody holding their breath for a decade waiting to find out what happens next? Uh, I think they're pretty conventional concerns. Uh, but it allowed me to, in each book, really focus on a certain kind of content, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And those given contents allowed then possibilities for, for different kinds of forms. So um, do you, you know, obviously those, the, you view those three as, uh, as maybe one, one book or, or one object or, um, or something along those lines. Do you view your work uh, as a whole as one extended book or do you view them as uh, distinct projects? Uh, I guess more distinct projects than one whole work, but you know, I I tend to like poets who spend their whole lives writing one long poem. Uh, Wallace Stevens, Charles Wright say it seems to me they they continually write the same poem over and over again, and it's a really good poem. And each attempt is an attempt at that larger poem. Uh, you know, if someone said that about me, I wouldn't be insulted by it. <laughs> I guess. But I do think that the first two books uh, for the new year and Hartwood were really dealing, well, they, they seem to me to be young, uh, young man's books, and they're really autobiographical, trying to understand what it is, really, in many ways, what it is to be a son. Uh, yeah, that seems to be the position of the speaker in a lot of the poems. Um, and the primary mode of those poems is, is narrative, maybe narrative meditative. They're really poems in what, at that time I was writing them, was called the plain style. Uh, maybe it's still called the plain style. Uh, and that was really what my teachers were, were encouraging me to attempt, a kind of clarity and a kind of transparency in my work. The next three books, I decided I was going to be a little bit more loyal to the poets that I first fell in love with, which would include, include people like Hopkins and Dunn and Stevens, uh, Keats, for whom there's a real, I don't know, surface density, if, if nothing else, a, uh, a complexity of sound, mm. not transparent, but that at every moment you're in their poems, you're aware that you're in a poem. You know, it doesn't pretend to be just somebody talking. Um, these last three books, then, um, maybe I'm too near them to really know what they did, mm -hmm. but they were written in this past decade, and I don't know. I guess I don't know anything about them. Maybe you'll ask me questions that will help me sure. know something more about them. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, after the publication of your first two books for the New Year in Hartwood, which you both mentioned, um, and both of those both of those seem dominated by poems, sort of in the narrative, lyric, autobiographical mode. Right. Um, 
But after that, your work seems to have become more hermetic or meditative. Um, is, there, is there something that prompted this shift, or was it, I suspect, just something that you naturally slid into? Um, you, you, know, you mentioned that the two books were sort of uh, in the plain style, uh, which was maybe a style that was advocated by maybe Donald Justice or Marvin Bell, some of the other great poets you studied with at Iowa. Um, but uh, so, so was, was there that conscious shift to say, uh, maybe like as a rebellious son to, uh, to move on into this, into the trilogy or the, or sorry, triptych? Uh, that seems like, you know, probably saved me many hours on the couch with, <laughs> with, with that analysis. Uh, I think yes is probably the answer to your question. That is that it was a, a move towards trying to learn how to write poems on my own. I really feel like Apocrypha is the first mature book I wrote. And, you know, even so, it still seems, you know, like a very young man wrote it to me. But... Well, he did, after all. Yeah. Uh, but it, it also had to do, I think, with different reading as well, and learning in a way how to, to marry influences in a way that I hadn't quite figured out when I was in my 20s. Uh, and so really, for instance, in Apocrypha, probably the two dominant influences on that book, well, three, really. One would be Czesław Milos. The other is Wallace Stevens. And then the other is reading the Nag Hammadi library uh, text, the various Gnostic Gospels. Uh, and somehow I put all of that into a blender and came up with what seemed like a new voice for myself. And one of the things that I immediately did in that book was to use the third person more often than I use the first person. And so even though I think many of the poems are still autobiographical, I was looking at myself as if I were another, as if I were a figure in history or a figure in a myth. Um, and some of that pose I think I really got from, from Milos, where he's constantly seeing himself as, as not only this poet who's living in a contemporary moment, but a poet who has witnessed history. Mm -hmm. And in that witnessing is almost bedeviled to be its chronicler. Uh, Stevens, Stevens too has uh, has you know many poems in the in the third from the third person point of view. Um, so so you, maybe you consciously employed that that POV. Uh, did did you did you employ it as maybe some kind of a distancing technique from uh, difficult material or uh, if not difficult personal material, maybe um, maybe maybe did it help you get into some of these um, become a little more comfortable discussing or engaging in some of these philosophical inquiries that you mentioned? Yes, I think that that, that is true. And, and what I admired in Stevens a great deal was how each poem is in its way a, a vehicle for thinking. Uh, he doesn't necessarily come to final thoughts. You know, he'll spend endless amount of time in a long poem making an argument only to undo that same argument in the next poem, mm -hmm. you know. And so that it helped me learn that 
that the poem wasn't so much a container in which to store memory, but a, a kind of place, a location in which I could do a certain kind of thinking. And the third person did allow me to, to distance myself and to consider, I don't know, to have the advantage, I think, of an omniscient narrator. That is, that, that you have a certain wisdom that your character doesn't have, and you can, you can be aware of what they know and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe even uh, especially because that character is much closer to you than you would like to admit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Certainly. And, you know, I, it's not as if I've abandoned the first person, of course. You no. know, it, it really comes back especially in that the book Reliquaries, which I sort of see as a kind of almost a revision of my second book, uh, Heartwood, uh, but in a much different method yes. of, of, of speaking and thinking. But, uh, you know, dealing with, with the details of one's life. Um, but thinking a lot more about them, you know, uh, in that... You know, when I was in my 20s writing about that past, it was a very recent past. Yeah. And, you know, from my 40s, it was much easier to <laughs> see more pattern uh-huh. in my past. Sure. And uh, actually, I wanted to talk about Reliquaries for a moment, if we could. Yeah. So Reliquaries, which was published by Osable Press in 2004, I'm, I'm sorry, 2005, seems a bit of a departure for you in many ways. Um, I guess the most immediate difference being formal that every poem in the book is arranged into four or five-line stanzas. At what point in your composition process did you make the decision to sustain this form throughout the manuscript? Was it um, you know, a conscious choice, or was it something that surprised you? Uh, it was a conscious choice that surprised me. Yeah. Or it surprised me, and then I made it a conscious choice. Or both of those things. Uh, the... I had the good fortune to be on a, a Guggenheim the year that that was written. And I was, I had finished up, uh, or was finishing up Oracle Figures, the book that came out before that. Uh, but at the same time I was working on finishing that book, I found myself uh, having an hour or two to kill almost every day because uh, my daughter was uh, on the crew team in high school, and so I would have to drive an hour down to the river, taking her down to the river. The practice was three hours long. Was this the Occoquan River? The Occoquan <laughs> River, yes, uh, which gets mentioned in the poem. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so since it was a three-hour practice, if I drove an hour down there, there was no use in turning around and coming home and driving back to pick her up. And so. I would park the car and just go for walks along the river. Um, it's hilly and wooded. Um, and on cold, rainy days, I just sit in the car. And one of the challenges I gave to myself was I said I was going to write five lines a day while I was at the river. And just the arbitrariness of that, that challenge, I guess, created that form of the five-line stanza. Um, and what happened was the first four days, I wrote four of them. And they were interesting next to each other. I hadn't thought of them as the same poem. But when I put them next to each other, I, I saw a real possibility. And so 
the next four days, I tried the same thing. And before you knew it, I was just turning those things out. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and I thought, why am I doing this? Uh, because as I always say to my students, everyone wants to write a long poem, but nobody wants to read one. <laughs> and uh, But it became an interesting shape. I found that when I was walking, that those stanzas became what I could hold in my head. Um, mm-hmm. And that became, in some ways, part of the form, what could be memorable to myself over a period of time. And then when I got back to the car, I got back home, that I could actually write it down, uh, which is not how I ever work at all. Uh, I see. Uh, I usually work with notebooks around me and little phrases here and there, and they're mostly a, a, a process of piecing poems together out of all these lines or whatever that I've written. But with reliquaries, they were written as those stanza units, and then as four stanzas in each poem. Uh, and because of their method, because of walking, because of memory, uh, yeah, their subject matter became in some ways meditative and about the nature and habit of memory. I often tell people I have no memory at all, I can't remember anything. <laughs> and and yet the poems were a, a, a method in some ways to get at things that I had forgotten. That's great. Yeah. Um, and also uh, here, again, I'm reminded of Stevens, who, who when he walked from his house in Hartford to uh, the insur- insurance agency where he worked, would often compose lines or maybe even whole poems. And I guess you didn't have a secretary I did uh, to, <laughs> to take dictation afterwards. But... Um, but anyway, uh, that, that said, do you think also in Reliquaries, uh, your lines, what, doubled in length? Or, uh, you know, I mean, you have, you know, these, many of the lines are, are, let's say, I don't know, eight beats long, seven beats long, maybe yeah. some are more. Um, so do you think this had to do, since it was a unique process of, of, uh, of uh, composition for you, do you think that this, that walking, for instance, had something to do with? Yes, I've always been someone who has been easily influenced by whatever my medium is. So, like in Hartwood, I was writing on 8.5 by 11, or 8.5 by 14 legal pads. And so, almost all of those homes originally were about 33 lines long, which is, (laughs) you know, how long. And then I started, when I started writing Apocrypha, it was the first time I worked on the computer. And Ah. they're little poems, and they were about what I could see on a computer screen of that era, you know, and so they all became relatively short because I have a hard time thinking about something I can't see all at once. What's <laughs> So a novel is out of the question. Right, anyway. right, yes, no novel for me. <laughs> um, but I found also with reliquaries that I was often writing them across, you know, what am I trying to say? I, I turned the notebook sideways ah. and was writing along the width, and so that allowed me uh, to write a longer line. I didn't go in intentionally wanting to write a longer line, but what happened was I, the first few started out in, I don't know, they were probably 15 to 20 syllable lines on average, and that became something of the habit of that mode of the poems. I see. Uh, but yeah, I think the walking helped. And I also decided that you know, if you look at 
a lot of my earlier poems. They're not terribly discursive. Um, and I thought in reliquaries I was going to, for once, try to, you know, use more verbs than the to be verb, mm -hmm. say. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Which can open up whole new worlds, right? right. right? <laughs> Things start to happen. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Or, well, yeah. on the page, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So um, at the heart of many of those poems, and I guess you could say many of, just many of your poems in general that you've written across your career, um, is a kind of intense spiritual crisis. Um, what is it like being a poet who explores sub, uh, subjects like spirituality, mystery, and the uncanny in an overwhelmingly secular age? Well, when I first started doing it in the early 90s, late 80s, especially at the institution I was teaching at then, at Washington University, where the sort of death of God was considered a historical fact and not a philosophical construct. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it, people thought it was quite odd and strange. Uh, and in fact, one person after a reading came up to me and said that they liked the poems quite a bit, but they were, they were surprised at how unabashed I was about their content, which struck me as really odd. Um, you know, I, I am part Co of this. Content being the death of God or, or content or being the, lack the of God, the, the hope or the struggle oh, I towards I yeah. maybe understanding God. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, it, I, I almost took that on as a challenge mm -hmm. then after that, you know, that, one should be embarrassed by that. Um, and there was a sense, really, that one had maybe mortgaged one's intelligence if one was a believer. And I'm not sure if I was a believer or not. I don't even know to this day if I'm a believer or not. But there was a, you know, I, I certainly sensed a kind of notion that, that people, I don't even know how to say this, but it's as if anyone who believed was somehow merely superstitious. Ah. Uh, and that somehow, if you affiliated yourself with Christianity in any way, you were somehow affiliating yourself with, with people with deep right-wing interests. And, and I certainly do not embrace any of that mm -hmm. at all. Um, Maybe a, a hopeful agnostic. A hopeful ag and, uh, agnostic. <laughs> that might be it. Um, throughout your career, you've, you've taught high school uh, at the undergraduate level and graduate level uh, at a few institutions, including uh, George Mason University and Washington University in St. Louis. Um, so how has teaching affected your work as a poet, if, if at all, you know, maybe besides the presence of a regular paycheck? <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, at least university teaching builds in, in some ways, part of, of the leisure time one needs to be an artist or a scholar. Uh, they expect that a third of your time is spent doing that sort of thing, and, and so it's good to take advantage of that. But even when I was teaching high school, uh, a lot of the book Hartwood was written while I was teaching creative writing, uh, creative writing, contemporary literature, and Humanities, I guess, was the other course, and I taught two sections of each, each day, six oh, wow. classes. Yeah. And I 
built in a lot of in-class writing time in my two creative writing classes. And so while they were responding to prompts, I would write to the same prompts. And a lot of those poems turned up in, in Hartwood. Uh, so having, you know, challenging students to write often challenged me to write. And as you know, I, I often write with my students as well in, in courses, uh, whether it's a prose poem class or, or the meditative mode, whatever assignment they're doing, I try to do it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, having a community of people around you who are excited about poems and who are making poems themselves, you know, I find deeply exciting and motivating. Um, you know, what about the job keeps me from wanting to write poems? I would say maybe two things, you know, department meetings where we all pretend like we have skills that we don't have and <laughs> try to solve problems that if we had those skills, well, we might be doing other jobs. Uh, and right now I'm reading graduate applications and it's really hard to read that many poems in a non-teacherly way. That is, essentially, I'm reading them to sort of say thumbs up or thumbs down. Hmm. You know, we're inviting them or we're not inviting them to come. And there are some really great poems, and I learned a lot about poetry reading these great poems. But there are also, like, sort of everything that's wrong with poetry. <laughs> and, you know, or everything that might define mediocre poetry. And, you know, in the face of really great poems, one is motivated to write. But in the midst of mediocre poetry, I often feel like, well, I don't want to add to this. <laughs> you know, you can start seeing in your own work everything that you find unfortunate in other people's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, so I guess the, the application process is a kind of mixed blessing, you know, there are these, you know, handful of students who are doing something that seems like the poetry of the future. Like, you know it's the real thing, but it's not like anything, you know, you've ever seen. And then there's the slogging through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I get paid really good money to do this, so I don't really mind. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so uh, you mentioned... Um, well, not inspiration, but maybe motivation for writing a little bit in your last response. Um, so what, motiv what motivates you to write generally? Um, you know, is it, is it something, you know, something like, uh, well, you want people to respond to your poems in the way that you respond to the poems of others who you revere and enjoy? You'd like, you want to you make the tops of people's heads feel like they're coming off? Um, or is it, is, it, is, it, is it an itch that you have to scratch? Is it, you know... A, a kind of a cleansing or something else or yeah I think that that's changed over time yeah uh, I remember when I was in graduate school I would literally wake up at three in the morning with you know a poem being born full-grown from the top of my head you know and I'd have to get up and write it down yeah. that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> uh, but I guess what I feel is that it's a much more intimate act in writing than almost any of the things, the way that you categorize it just now. It's more like being in conversation with other poets. Mm -hmm. um, 
I often find that what compels me to write is reading other people's poems. Uh, and that the poem is often a way of reacting to what I've read in the way that you would have a conversation with someone. And it's not necessarily meant to be broadcast loud or even public. And yet... Put on a podcast, for right. instance. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, of course, anytime you're writing, you, know, you're, you have to imagine that there is some future audience. There is a potential audience, at least. Uh, but, you know, I don't do it necessarily to think I'm going to knock somebody, you know, yeah. take the top off of somebody's head. You know, that's why I go to other poems. You know, that's why I read poems, is I want to experience that. I don't sit around and read my own poems because, you know, I, I see all the places where I have a bad stitch and all the places where, you know, there's a structural flaw and, you know, I think of all the things I had hoped to do in that poem, but merely settled for the poem that, that we all see. When I read other people's poems, I don't see all that. You know, I, I just see usually perfection and brilliance and uncanniness and, and a surprise. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, along those lines, you've also for, for many years uh, dabbled in the visual arts, particularly in collage and uh, the composition of shadow boxes akin to those of Joseph Cornell. Um, in what ways have the visual arts, whether uh, your own work or the work of others, informed your poetry? Well, certainly the work of others has informed my poetry a lot. I find if I am having a hard time writing, all I really have to do is go down to the Smithsonian and walk around in museums for a little while and look at art. And I can come home and usually something happens. Mm -hmm. uh, I love looking at art, visual art. And in fact, most of the reading I do is monographs on visual arts or art history, theory of art. Um, in my own visual art, uh, I try to explore different kinds of subjects, I guess, in the visual arts. Uh, the pieces tend to be whimsical and sometimes funny. Um, and I think I'm kind of a doleful poet and not terribly funny. Uh, there are moments. There are moments, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but What's interesting is that the process is somewhat similar. That is, to write my poems, I tend to do a lot of reading and jotting down phrases and words and notebooks. And then I go back to those notebooks, you know, after some time to see what I've written down. And it all seems strange and unusual. But suddenly I start seeing relationships among things that I hadn't seen when I'd originally written them down and start essentially uh, assembling them. And so the boxes, the Cornell-type boxes or collages, are very much a similar thing. That is that I, I tend to spend a certain amount of time accumulating images, uh, stuff that will go into the assemblage. Uh, and I don't know why I'm interested in those things until I start putting them together, until I start seeing relationships among the pieces. I don't know. That, that notion of a lot of my process in writing and in the visual arts is a time of gathering, a time of just, I don't know, gleaning, picking up stuff, collecting. And then once I have a, a certain amount of raw material, I can get going uh, 
it's really hard for me to just sit down and write a poem. Mm. Uh, it's something I rarely ever ask my students to do, is to write an in-class poem, you know, impromptu, because I wouldn't want to do it. Um, you are, you're married to the wonderful poet Jennifer Atkinson. What is it like to share your life with another artist, particularly one who practices the same craft? I think it's wonderful to have someone, one that sort of understands what it is that you do. Um, you know, I've, I've been in relationships with people who, you know, a person who is an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank, and I had no understanding of, of what her business was. You know, I mean, I, I still don't necessarily understand how the money markets and what work, you know, how they create money, whatever. Uh, but with Jennifer, it's really great because I have a reader. You know, she sees most of my poems in their earliest showable drafts. And she finds things to like in them nonetheless, even though they're very early drafts, and it's very encouraging. You know, it's also good to have someone who is productive living with you, who, who is disciplined. So, you know, if she's working in a morning, you know, it's much harder for me to try to convince her to go see a movie, mm -hmm. say rather than sit down and try to work myself. And so there is a discipline built in as well. Uh, I'd say over the years that we've been married, our poems have gotten further and further apart. We, when we first met in graduate school, we were writing, or at least we were under the influence of very similar um, poets and aesthetics. And I, I think that over the years that that's grown a little farther apart, and I think that that's a good thing. Um, you know, not to be, in a way, stepping on each other's toes, you know, taking content she has dibs on, say. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, does uh, is, it, is it vice versa? Does, does she show you uh, poems in their relative infancy? And, she does, yeah. yes. Uh, in fact, you know, most days, if we have written something, uh, we will share it with one another, um, usually with all sorts of self-deprecation. Mm -hmm. This is a piece of crap. I don't know what this is. I just wrote it. And, and then she's very good at telling me what my poem has said, uh, which I'm not always aware of when I've written them. I'm usually just aware of how this word goes next to this word. Yeah. Um, She's very good at, at giving me a reading. Right. Um, and, you know, I think some people think it would be not a good thing to, to live with another artist. You live with another artist and it seems to work for you. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's the, the best of all possible worlds. You know, that for one thing, we you know, only have to buy one copy of a book. Uh -huh. you know, <laughs> the library grows. <laughs> And so uh, I assume that it's the same when you both have manuscripts you're 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 working on. But in terms of um, in in both of your separate processes with uh, completing manuscripts, do you tend to share them at different stages? So you know you'll be you'll maybe have a early draft of a of a manuscript. Would you then share that with Jennifer, and would she then share 
hers with you, or would you wait until you were further on, or? Uh, yes, I think we have shared early drafts of manuscripts. Yeah, we we've shared I, you know every book manuscript along the way. Uh, she says that she's not good at considering full books, you know, a large thing. She she feels like she's really good at reading one poem at a time. And in fact, that's how she goes about the world. You know, like when she reads a book of poems, she's not reading the book of poems, she's reading in the book of poems. Mm -hmm. Whereas I sit down and read it from cover to cover as if it's a single thing. And, you know, as if it's my pleasure reading, Uh even. well, it should be, shouldn't it? It should be, <laughs> yes. Uh, so she always claims not to be very good, but again, just like in her reading of the individual poems, she's quite good at showing me what poems seem somehow aberrant in the manuscript to not be involved in the same argument. Uh, she also is very good at showing me how I've articulated something by, say, a single image throughout the the, the manuscript, how a repetition changes and complicates part of the argument of the poem. Uh, she's also a very good proofreader. Mm. So when I actually have had book manuscripts in hand, I, I think I have been lucky to have her there to catch all sorts of errors I never would have seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, finally, you have a new book forthcoming in 2013 with Milkweed Editions. Could you talk a little about this manuscript? How does it differ from your other books? What's it called, etc.? Yes. It's called Dissolve. And that's a title, actually, that Jennifer gave me after uh-huh. reading it. Uh, she said that lots of things are sort of merging into one another, or, or changing substance. Uh, and that, that notion, that almost alchemical notion of, of an element changing from one property into another is at the heart of a lot of the poems. Um, But what's it about? Um, Well, again, I think it's a book that grew out of a a very deep depression. Uh, Except this time I was aware that I was in a deep depression, (laughs) and I didn't think that everybody felt like I did. I think the poems also have a little bit to do with... uh, with my relationship to alcohol and the sort of struggle with the bottle. Uh, like Elvis Costello says, a struggle with the bottle is nothing so novel. Uh, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I, it's certainly not, it, they're not poems about drinking or they're not poems about being depressed. But they're really, I think a lot of the meditations are about how does one feeling the sort of leaden weight of depression continue to make something, to make something of the world, whether it's poems or through a day mm-hmm. or to be a good parent, to be a good partner, whatever. And uh, Well, in that way, even though, even though these poems came out of depression and maybe a struggle with, with drinking, um, in a way they're kind of hopeful because something was made Right. Something was finished, even. That's um, true. Maybe in the same way that uh, your daughter Claire just was, was married recently. Right. And uh, in a way, that's something coming to an end. Uh, not 
not of course in a negative way, but an accomplishment right. as a parent, I can imagine. Yeah, no, it is, it does feel good. And, and I agree, uh, you know, that... The, That's only natural. I, I certainly don't want it to seem melodramatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it truly was the condition I was in, and I felt, uh, you know, it, as if my feet were in concrete and as if the world were in slow motion and as if I could feel every negative thing in the world. Uh, and then in the midst of that, how to write a poem that isn't merely wallowing, but is in some ways looking for moments of lightness, both in the sense of light and of, of not being pulled down by gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the poems really were a, a good place for me not to, I guess, as I said earlier, I think, poke at the sore, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but in some ways to move beyond it um, and to think really positively about the world. There, there's a certain contentment in this book that I don't think exists in some of the earlier books. Mm. Um, there's a sense of, I don't know, almost forward thinking, mm. being positive. Imagine. <laughs> Whether the poems are uplifting, I don't know, but, uh, yeah. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website at www.awpwriter.org. Mm -hmm.